0: Well, it is a joy and it is a privilege to be back with you guys this evening and to have the opportunity to continue through our Route 66 series, to embark and continue on this journey. In the last week, in the last time that we gathered, Brandon led us through the first of the historical books, the book of Joshua. And this evening we advance in the biblical story to the book of Judges. I've titled this message, Judges, The Need for a King. With that in mind, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's word to Judges chapter two. Judges chapter two, and as you turn there, I encourage you to catalog back with me in your minds to the summer of 2020. We're not too far removed from that volatile period in our nation's history. And that summer, in response to Some recent tragic events involving the law enforcement, cities around the country faced their irrational and destructive behavior of rioters and looters. One such city allowing this anarchy was the largest metropolitan area in the state of Washington, the city of Seattle. The Department of Justice, now the Department of Injustice, released statistics and facts in a statement concerning this anarchy in September of 2020. And this is reading from this memo from the Department of Justice that year. For nearly a month, starting in June of the year 2020, the city of Seattle permitted anarchists and activists to seize six square blocks of the city's Capitol Hill neighborhood, naming their new enclave, the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest, summarized or condensed with the acronym CHOP. Law enforcement and firefighters were precluded. They were prevented from entering this zone. The Seattle Police Department had to abandon this precinct in their jurisdiction. Crime within this area increased 525% from the same period of time in the same area just a mere year before the city uh, council of Seattle and their mayor, along with the governor of Washington, Jay Inslee, prevented the federal enforcement of the law and the help of federal law enforcement officers. And Seattle isn't the only example of this unrest, of this anarchy. You can think of other cities. I mean, think of Portland, think of Los Angeles, think of Chicago, think of New York City, where in these cities, the elected officials these liberal district attorneys have no desire for justice, no desire to see the law enforced. And the common thread that runs throughout these cities that promote this anarchy, that undermine the God-ordained authorities is the result of complete chaos and anarchy. An incessant cesspool of sin and wickedness being perpetrated what these cities need besides revival brought about by God, the Holy Spirit, bestowing the gifts of repentance from sin and faith in the biblical gospel and the biblical Jesus is an understanding and a recognition of proper authorities. You see, a lot of, what we see taking place in cities throughout the country is similar to what we see take place in the book of Judges. In these chaos-producing, anarchy-affirming cities, what is needed is a figure, a figure who will stand for justice, a figure who will enforce law and order. In the book of Judges, we come to find out that the nation of Israel is collectively in need of a righteous human king. We see the sin and the disobedience of God's people fleshed out over and over and over again, enforcing the idea that the people need a righteous king, a righteous king that is described in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 17, a king whom Yahweh himself would choose, one from the Israelites, one who would not make political alliances with other nations, who would not rely upon military might, but who would walk in the ways of Yahweh, who would walk with his God humbly. The need for a righteous king is demonstrated and evidenced by that repeated phrase that occurs again and again at the end of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. We find the people of Israel in the land, in the land that was promised back in the Abrahamic covenant, back all the way in Genesis chapter 12. We see God numerically blessing the people of Israel, multiplying the descendants of Abraham. And yet when we come to the pages of Judges, we see the nation of Israel still encumbered by the remaining Canaanites that they failed to drive out during the conquest. That is where we come this evening to the book of Judges. And as we analyze this magnificent book, I want us to study it under the five movements that are so prevalent throughout the middle portion of this book from chapter two, all the way to chapter 16. This evening, as we study the book of Judges, I wanna study it under the five movements of the Judges cycle so that you will have a greater grasp of the book of Judges and the flow of redemptive history. Now, before we get into these five movements, I want us to first read chapter two, verses 11 through 19. You see, this portion of the book of Judges acts as a snapshot. It acts as a summary of what we see unfold over and over again throughout Judges. The author of this, the human author, was presumed by Jewish authorities to be Samuel, and we have no reason to contradict that claim. The author is not named in this book. But ultimately, these are the words of God. In Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, we read these words. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. And they forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked Yahweh to anger. So they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of Yahweh burned against Israel, and he gave them into hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of Yahweh was against them for evil, as Yahweh had spoken and as Yahweh had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Then Yahweh raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of Yahweh. They did not do as their fathers. When Yahweh raised up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers, and following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. And this is what we see take place over and over again through each of the successive judges that we see in chapters three through chapter 16. And so as we consider those five movements, I want us to first consider the first movement of the judges cycle, which is the sin of God's people. The sin of God's people. The book of Judges is replete with evidence of the idolatry and rebellion of the sons of Israel against their covenant Lord and King. In fact, if you think about it, the book of Judges serves as an apologetic against the humanist and the evolutionist who will say that the morality of people is progressively improving, is progressively evolving. Not only does a quick look at the chaos and calamity that persist in our world today demonstrate that humanity is not improving, but is in fact entirely wicked and corrupt, but the book of Judges is explicitly clear in detailing the moral decline and the ethical depravity of even those whom God had chosen, whom he had redeemed and who had brought out of Egypt by a powerful hand. I want you to think back with me if you can to those vortex spiral wishing wells that were commonplace throughout malls across the land. Do you remember those? I'm glad because nowadays all shopping is done online, but you see, there used to be these things with centralized stores and a collective collaboration called malls. I know they're not as common nowadays, but it was in these ancient wonders called malls that there was these spiral vortex wishing wells where the kid would come and he would take his quarter and he would put it at the very edge of that wishing well and it would go around the widest circumference of that circle and it would go slow. And You think it's gonna last forever until it gets progressively closer to the funnel. And what happens to the change in that that instance? It goes faster and faster and faster and faster and faster until ultimately it's at the bottom of the collection barrel. You see this means of collecting spare pocket change serves as the perfect illustration of what we see depicted in the book of Judges. The sin which progresses from bad to worse reaches its climax in the latter portion of the book of Judges where we see the utter apostasy of the nation of Israel on full display. One commentator notes that the theme of this book is progressive deterioration. Another commentator writes, Israel is depicted as spiraling downwards into worse and worse apostasy. You see, the sin of the people of God is on full display even right at the outset of the book. Turn turn back to chapter 1. Chapter 1 emphasizes the disobedience of the sons of Israel for not fully eradicating, fully destroying the Canaanites, but allowing them to persist in living in the land. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Notice they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley. Let your eyes glance down to verse 21. The sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Look at verse 27. Manasseh did not take possession. Later in verse 27, the Canaanites persisted living in the land. Verse 28, they did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive them out. 30, Zebulun did not drive them out. And on and on and on throughout the rest of chapter one. In the Pentateuch, God is explicitly clear, Israel was to enter the promised land and they were to completely dispossess the nations that were before them. They were to utterly destroy them, including their paraphernalia for worship. And yet the disobedience and the sin, which is so commonplace in the book of Judges can be resulted back to this failure to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Deuteronomy 7.2 says, you shall utterly destroy them. Later, Moses writes in chapter 20, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. You shall utterly destroy them. So right at the outset in chapter one, we see this highlight and this emphasis of the partial obedience of the sons of Israel, of allowing the nations to remain in the land. And this partial obedience is nothing more than the disobedience of God's people. And just as Yahweh had promised in the Torah, the nations that persisted in living in the land became a thorn in the sides of the people of Israel. They became a prick in their eyes. Look at chapter two, chapter two, verse 10. The generation of Joshua were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Now the implicit statement that is found here is that the previous generation were not faithful to the Deuteronomy 6 commandment to teach all of the statutes and the judgments to the previous generation. And let this be a warning to all of us this evening that it takes one generation to go from a successive obedient generation in the book of Joshua to an ignorant, disobedient generation in the book of Judges. You see the outwork of this lack of saving knowledge of God and his majestic character is the stimulus to the rampant sin and idolatry that permeates the pages of Judges. The great Presbyterian preacher James Montgomery Boyce says, no people ever rise higher than their idea of God. And conversely, a loss of the sense of God's high and awesome character always involves a loss of people's moral values and even what we call humanity. Our view of God affects what we are and do, End quote. I mean, don't we see this taking place in our own generation, in our own society? A suppression of the truth of God in unrighteousness A lack of saving trust and knowledge of the God who is. And ultimately, and ultimately, it leads to a degradation in the moral consciousness of a people. Turn on the news let's fast forward to the middle section of the book of Judges, Judges chapter three through 16. And I wanna point out to you a phrase that occurs over and over again as these cycles continue. Look at chapter three, verse seven. Chapter three, verse seven. It says that the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and forgot Yahweh their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Again, and again, the same exact phrase is echoed with each of the successive judgeships. Judges 3.12, you can see now the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Chapter four, verse one, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Judges one, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Do you get the picture? Over and over again. As these successive judgeships came about, the sons of Israel almost immediately reverted back to their practices of evil and idolatry, forsaking their king and lord. Now, this downward spiral continues to where it reaches its lowest depths in the final pages of Judges, in Judges chapter 17 through 21. In chapter 17, we see the account of this idolater named Micah. Micah was a man of the hill country of Ephraim and him and his idolatrous mother went to their local silversmith and crafted an idol and set it up in their house as he established his own priesthood and his own temple. Now, obviously this was a clear violation and transgression of the covenant. I mean, consider Deuteronomy chapter 12. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, God says, you are to worship me in the place that I put my name. You see, God is the one who prescribes how he is to be worshipped. And that includes the place that he is to be worshipped. Not in a house in Ephraim, but where he established his name. In chapter 19, this continues, we see the heinous sin of the men of Gibeah a sin that is recorded using the very language that is used of the Sodom and Gomorrah account in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. These men act wickedly, seeking to have central relations with the Levite man traveling through the land and they end up raping and abusing this man's concubine. Now there is irony in the narrative in chapter 19. This Levite says that we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not the sons of Israel. He's talking about Jerusalem, which at this time was still under Canaanite control. He says, no, we'll go to a city of the sons of Israel. And the irony of the story is that this Levite and his concubine travel to the land of Benjamin, to a city of the sons of Israel and a sin which is not even named amongst the Gentiles takes place. You see, the people of God are acting more like the Canaanites around them than those whom God had entered into covenant with and had given his law. Chapter 19 closes with these daunting words in verse 30. It says, nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. In chapter 20, we see the sons of Israel turning in on themselves, instead of being united in the pursuit of the Canaanites, rather turn in on themselves and introduce a civil war of sorts, putting the tribe of Benjamin on the cusp of extinction. Truly matters in the life and the nation of the son of Israel were grim during this time. You see, the sons of Israel might be in the land but they look and act more like the resident Canaanites rather than the people whom God had redeemed. Now we mentioned in the beginning that the book of Judges presents us with the purpose, the apologetic for the need of a righteous human king. And it's in these latter pages that I wanna point you to a phrase that is repeated over and over again with the first occurrence in chapter 17, verse six. In chapter 17, verse six, we read, in those days, there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. We see this again in chapter 18, verse one, 19, verse one, and in the last verse of the book of Judges in chapter 21, verse 25. That was the problem with the sons of Israel during this epic in their history. They didn't abide by the requirements and the prescriptions of the Mosaic law but rather they became a law to themselves. They did what was right in their own eyes. They cast the cords and they tore the fetters away of their covenant king and Lord. The people of Israel set themselves up as their own gods, as their own kings, doing what they considered to be morally appropriate, right and true without any consideration for the lordship and the kingship of God. And is that not the world that we live in this very day? Is that not the culture that encompasses this post-modernized, post-Christianized world? Who are you to tell me that what I'm doing is sinful? Who are you to tell me that God has appointed a day by which he will judge the world in righteousness, having furnished proof by raising a man from the dead? That's your truth, not mine. And that truth has no bearing upon my life. My body, my choice, my gender, my choice, my sexual perversions, my choice every man doing what is right in his own eyes. We live in a culture that champions this mantra, the mantra of self autonomy and illustrates this very fact, this very statement that we see at the latter half of the book of Judges. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes. And while it's easy to look out there, while it is so plainly observed and manifested in the culture around us, the sad reality is, is that subtly as Christians, we can fall into this very trap. Subtly, we fall into the trap as if not living in light that there is a high king of heaven we oftentimes do what is right in our own eyes, not consulting the divine words of God in the pages of scripture. We often live as if God is not sovereign, as if he's not omnipresent, being carried away by the tides and the winds of our secularized culture rather than resolutely and boldly standing firm upon the lordship and the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, let us commit this day to live in light of the glorious kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Let us seek to live quorum Deo, Latin word, before the face of God, to live as in the presence of God under the authority of God, all to the glory of God. Let that be what per, be what permeates your thoughts when you rise up in the morning. Let that be what impresses upon your heart as you lay your head upon your pillow at night. Let that be what encompasses your thoughts throughout the course of your daily existence. Christian, consider what your chief end is, your chief ambition in this life according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is your chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Every single second of every single day. Now, while your sin might not be as overt as heinous as the sin that is evidenced in the book of Judges, you must understand that all sin is reprehensible in the sight of God. All sin, even those respectable sins that we studied this summer, are cosmic treason against the high king of heaven and are worthy of his righteous judgment. You see, the book of Judges abounding in evidence of the people of God transgressing the covenant abrogating the rule of God, the king over their lives, summarized by that phrase, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Well, that brings us to our second movement in the judges cycle. The second movement in the judges cycle and also serving as the outline of our study, and that is the servitude of God's people. The sin of God's people, the servitude of God's people. As a result of the disobedience of the sons of Israel, As a result of their covenant disloyalty and infidelity, Yahweh gives the nation of Israel into the hands of their surrounding enemies. These pagan nations then subjugated and subjected the sons of Israel to servitude. You see the subjugation and subjection of the nation of Israel to these foreign adversaries was the judgment of God against their sins. This is exactly what God had promised would happen. Consider the curses of the covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 28. One of the curses of the covenant was divine abandonment. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 25 says that Yahweh will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. In Joshua's farewell sermon, in Joshua 23, as a result of this disobedience, Joshua says, know with certainty that Yahweh your God will not continue to drive out these nations before you. And it's over and over again in this cyclical pattern after in the book of Judges, that as a result of the people's sin, they're given over into the hands of their enemies. Look at Judges chapter three. Judges chapter three. We already read verse seven, but let's consider verse eight. Judges chapter three, verse eight says that then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of the king of Mesopotamia. Look down at verse 12. As a result of the sons of Israel again doing evil in the sight of Yahweh, Yahweh strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab. Why? Because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges four, two The Lord sells them into the hands of Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. Chapter six, again, the sons of Israel are subjected to servitude, this time to Midian. Chapter 10, it's the sons of Ammon and the Philistines. Chapter 13, it's the Philistines again. But I want us to consider why. Why were the sons of Israel subjected to this servitude? Well, chapter two tells us that It was to test the people of Israel to see whether they would walk in the paths of righteousness. But you also must notice that this is the just response of the righteous king and covenant Lord. The people had acted unfaithfully and they forsook Yahweh and his covenant. And as a result, the covenant curses came upon the people. We have seen throughout Torah, we have seen in the pages of Joshua that the Lord, that the God Almighty is the majestic one the one who is high and lifted up, the one who is perfectly holy, both majestically and morally. He can't just proverbially wink at sin. Genesis tells us in Genesis eighteen twenty-five that he's the righteous judge of all of the earth. He must, because of his pure and holy character, punish that which is completely antithetical to that character. Now I want us to consider a point of application from this servitude of the people of Israel. First, a point of application for the believer here this evening. If you have repented from your sins and you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you have been declared righteous. You have been justified before the tribunal of God. And not just justified, but adopted and welcomed into God's family. Therefore, when you resort to that old sin believer, when you speak that unkind word, when you do that unkind act, when you become discontent, when you envy another, God doesn't judicially punish you for your sin. that sin has been dealt with once for all. At Calvary's cross, where the sin bearing substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, satisfied the justice of God against your sin and secured expiation, cleansing, forgiveness for your sins. But as an adopted child of God, while your sins have been judicially dealt with once for all, Hebrews tells us that God lovingly disciplines his children. It is the loving discipline of a father, which we see in Hebrews 12 is for the purpose of holiness that we would share in his holy character Now I want to consider a point of application for you this evening if you're an unbeliever. If you persist in living in the darkness, if you persist in rejecting the offer of the gospel, if you persist in your habitual sin-stained life, God must judicially justly deal with your sins. He will unleash the fuel fury of his righteous wrath and the rod of his justice will come down upon your feeble head. But let me say this evening, unbelieving sinner, in God's divine forbearance, he has patiently, and mercifully, not stricken you down with the stroke which is due to you for your sin. And that is the pure kindness of God. And Paul tells us in Romans 2 that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. So do not presume upon the patient forbearance and kindness of God. Do not presume that he is pleased with you if you are living a life that is contrary, that is antithetical to the gospel, do not presume upon the kindness of the Lord. It is the pure kindness of God that you are here this evening and that you are breathing and you should. nay, you must. You must come to him on his terms. You must look to the one who was crushed on Calvary's cross for you. You must cast all of your righteous works to the side for the surpassing worth of being found in Christ, not possessing a righteousness of your own derived from the law, but the righteousness which comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ, whom he publicly put forth as a propitiation in his blood. Back to Judges. You see, following the sin of God's people in the judge's cycle, the next movement of the cycle demonstrates the servitude of God's people. And that brings us to a third movement. And that third movement is the supplication of God's people. The sons of Israel are subjected to another foreign pagan nation and they groaned and they cried out to Yahweh, pleading for deliverance from oppression and from their foreign adversaries. And as we read in the overview of the Judges cycle in chapter two, it was at this stage of supplication that the Lord looked upon the sons of Israel with pity for their groanings. Judges three, nine says that as a result of the servitude of Israel to the king of Mesopotamia, that the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Judges 3.15, we find the same cry for deliverance, the same supplication for salvation from their oppressors. Judges 4.3, the sons of Israel cried out. Judges 6.7, the sons of Israel cried out. Over and over again, the people are subjected to the curse of the covenant with the oppression inflicted by foreign adversaries as a result, as a byproduct for their disobedience to God and it's in the throes of this oppression, in the throes of this affliction that the sons of Israel cry out to God, pleading and groaning for deliverance. And it's at this point that I want you to notice something about the character of God. God had every right to utterly destroy and annihilate the sons of Israel. I mean, over and over again, they provoke him to anger. Over and over again, they return as a dog to its vomit to the same exact sins that they had committed before, doing the very things that he warned them about, committing the same evils and idolatry that brought about the previous oppression. I want you to notice in this instance, the long suffering of God, the patience of God, the mercy of God. I mean, what a sinful and rebellious people. They had forsook their Lord. They had served the other pagan deities and gods, which are no gods at all. And yet God remains faithful to his covenant promises. He does not utterly destroy them. He does not cast them away permanently. When the sons of Israel cried out, God answered. He graciously responded. I mean, what a patient and merciful and long-suffering God. Christian, has he been patient with you? has he been long suffering with you in your sins? Has he lavished his steadfast love out upon you in Christ and a bountiful supply that will never run dry? Christian, believer, does this not make your soul merry? Does this not bring great cheer to your weary soul? Absorb yourself in these perfections of our great God. Make it your daily ambition and endeavor to meditate and consider the patience of God, the mercy of God, the steadfast love of God. I also want you to notice from this instance that God inclines his ears to the prayers of his people. He delights and he welcomes the prayers and the supplications of his people. Not because our prayers are worthy, not in the slightest, but because of who he is, because we have a divine advocate, because we have a great high priest, a mediator before the throne of God, whoever lives to intercede for you. What a truth. He delights and he inclines his ear to the prayers of his people, the supplications of his people. Now, as we continue to journey throughout the movements of the judges cycle, we've witnessed the sin of God's people. We've observed the servitude of God's people. And we just looked at the supplication of God's people. I now want us to move to a fourth movement in the judges cycle. And that is serving as our outline for this evening. And that is the salvation of God's people. You see this component and movement of the judges cycle takes up the largest portion of the overall contents of the book in response to the supplication of God's people, God was pleased to raise up judges to deliver them. Now, before we get into the specific judges, we need to understand what the judges were and who they were. It's these judges by which the book derives its name. It's why it's in the pages of your Bible as judges. The Hebrew noun, shafat, is the designation that is used to describe and to identify these judges. Now the noun can mean to be involved in a judicial matter, kind of how we would use the term judge, but the word also has the meaning of a ruler or a governor or a deliverer. And while the judges could officiate in judicial affairs, their primary purpose and significant during this period were to act as regional military leaders, sovereignly called by God and empowered by his spirit, to deliver his people from the oppression. It's the regional nature of these judges. You see, these judges weren't over the entire nation of Israel, but acted in geographical areas for various tribes, but not over the entirety of the nation of Israel. That coupled with the cyclical sin pattern of the people of Israel, which demonstrates the need for a righteous king, one who would walk in the way of the Lord, one who would meditate upon the law of God and who would lead in light of that truth. The purpose is to demonstrate the need for a righteous human king to rule as a vice regent and mediatorial representative of the heavenly king over the entire nation of Israel. And these judges were also raised up by God and empowered by God's spirit to perform their designated task and function. That is to say that God sovereignly appointed these judges and sovereignly bestowed upon them power from on high to execute their office. There's three judges that are mentioned in the New Testament in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 that we see in chapters three through 16. And those three judges are Gideon, Samson, and Jephthah. And they're all described as men of faith who by faith conquered kingdoms and put foreign enemies and armies to flight. Now, as you read the accounts of these judges, you undoubtedly observe that they were not perfect individuals, that they had character flaws. But the writer of Hebrews specifically identifies these three judges and commends them for their faith in God and his promises. We begin to be introduced to these judges in chapter three. The first judge that is recorded is Othniel. The latter half of chapter three, we read the account of Ehud delivering the sons of Israel from Moabite oppression. In chapters four and five, we read about Deborah Deborah was the only female judge mentioned in the book of Judges who delivered along with Barak, the people of Israel from the Canaanites. We can move forward to chapter six through eight where we read about the judgeship of Gideon. Now we must take a brief pit stop as we consider Gideon. You see in the pages of Judges, Gideon is described as being from the family of the least in Manasseh and who was the youngest of his siblings in this father's household. You see, he is the most unlikely character possible to be raised up by God as a deliverer and a judge in Israel. But this is exactly how God works, is it not? He chooses the least of these, the, the unwise, the foolish, the weak, in order that he might be the one who is properly honored and exalted and glorified. And you can see this very reality in chapter 7, In chapter seven, the men who were under Gideon's command at 32,000 are whittled down to 300 chosen men to attack the camp of Midian. And in a way that is so similar to what we read about in Joshua chapter six, with the fall of Jericho, Gideon and his men blow the trumpets, they smash the pitchers and victory is won through the Lord's power. In chapters 11 through 12, we read about Jephthah and his judgeship, including his tragic vow that caused him to sacrifice his daughter. And the final judge, which is mentioned in the pages of Judges, ranging from chapter 13 to 16, is that of Samson. Samson was raised up to deliver the people from the Philistines. And you'll remember, Samson was a man of great strength. He slew a 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey. He tore a lion to shreds but he also had great weaknesses. You see, his heart longed for foreign women. These judges were deliverers. They saved and delivered the sons of Israel from foreign oppressors, yet their office was executed on a regional basis. the geographical and regional limitations of the judges demonstrate the need for this righteous human king who would lead the people of God in the ways of God according to the Torah of God. As the judges cycle continues, we see that in response to the supplication of God's people, God raises up these judges, these deliverers for the salvation of God's people. And that brings us to a fifth and final movement in the judges cycle that I want us to observe this evening and that is the security of God's people, the security of God's people. You see, the judges brought about the rest and the security that the land should have experienced, that the people should have experienced. But in the book of Judges, we see that it's for brief temporal periods of time. In Judges 311, we see that the land had rest for 40 years. In 330, we see that the land was undisturbed for 80 years And so it goes. This rest and this security continues through the successive judgeships, which are listed in that middle portion of the book of Judges. These brief periods of rest and security are microcosms, miniatures of the blessing of rest that the sons of Israel would have enjoyed for obedience to God. You can read the blessings pronounced at Gerizim and Deuteronomy chapter 28 to see this reality. This was to be the blessing for covenant obedience to Yahweh. The nation would prosper. They would experience the gracious rest provided by the Lord. Yet, as a result of the disobedience and persistent idolatry that is cataloged for us in the pages of Judges, this rest was just for brief periods of time. And what you'll find again and again is that this cycle repeats itself. You'll notice that the people resort back to their evil practices. and notice that it comes right on the heels of rest, right on the heels of security. And let this be a warning to you this evening, that it's oftentimes when our guard is down, whenever we become complacent and content in the Christian life, by which we're most prone to resort back to those evil practices, It was the same way with the nation of Israel in the book of Judges. Now, as we close this evening, I want us to consider this Judges cycle. I I wanna consider it in the flow of redemptive history. I want you to think about this cycle and I want you to think, does this bring about anything in your mind that has occurred in redemptive history so far? I want you to think about the close parallels and the similarities between the judges cycle that we see here and the Exodus. Redemptively and historically, the judges cycle reminds us of the Exodus account. The people are subjected in servitude to a foreign nation, oppressed and afflicted. In the case of the Exodus generation, it was the nation of Israel. And we read in Exodus chapter two that the people sighed because of their bondage that they cried out to the Lord, the same language that we find in the book of Judges. And what does God do in response? It says in verse 25 of Exodus chapter two that God took notice of them. And God in response raises up Moses, a deliverer, a prophet who would redeem them, who would bring them out of the land of Egypt, who would bring them safely through the plagues, the Passover and the Red Sea, and ultimately to Sinai. And I want you to reflect on these parallels and the similarities that exist between the Exodus account and the Judges cycle. But not only does the Judges cycle point back retrospectively to the Exodus, but it points forward prospectively to a second Exodus accomplished by a greater prophet, by the Davidic king, the one whom the Lord would raise up, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And rather than delivering his people from bondage to foreign adversaries and physical enemies, the Lord Jesus Christ redeems his people from spiritual bondage. And it's not temporary. Jesus, the greater prophet and Davidic king, the greater judge and savior, delivers his people from their sins. And it's that one to whom the book of Judges and the rest of the Old Testament points ahead to. It's that one whom we worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this magnificent book. Lord, as we read about the disobedience and the sin of your people, God, we see just how often that we fall and that we resort to our old patterns of life. But Lord, we thank you for the deliverance that you have brought about, the deliverance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we consider these books, as we consider the flow in canonical history and redemptive history, as we work throughout these books that you would impress upon ourselves a greater understanding of the greatest story, the biblical story. Lord, would you do your work of grace in our hearts? Would you humble us sinners and would you be exalted? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.